Good morning, Crossroads. Great to see you this morning. If you would take your Bibles out with me and turn to Matthew chapter 5. Matthew chapter 5, you don't have a Bible, there's one with a seat back in front of you. If you turn with us to page 809, Matthew chapter 5, page 809. Now, I know some of you are thinking, all right, Dave, is this something to do with medical, and so you're a little hesitant? Or are you just trying to be Batman? And, and let me just tell I can see why you would think that, of course. Um, but here's the reality. Probably in some form or in some fashion, all of us are wearing some kind of mask, potentially even this morning. For some of us, maybe it's a mask of insecurity. And we have these whispers that keep speaking into our ear that say, we just don't add up. We just don't have it. For some of us, maybe it's a mask of sin that just keeps rearing its ugly head and, and habitually you just keeps struggling with the same sin over and over again. You just hope nobody finds out and that secret sin has you captive. For others, maybe it's the mask that says you're not worthy. And so you feel like just as you're walking through life, you're just unworthy. You just feel worthless in your life. And can I tell you this, a little secret, that when you start to believe you're worthless, you eventually live as if you are worthless. For others of us, maybe the mask that we're wearing is a mask of religion. We, where we on the outside look the part, right? We check off the box. We, we come to church and we serve in a ministry and we go to a small group. We check off the box and yet our hearts are far from God and so we're doing the religious duty and yet on the inside our cups aren't clean. And so we hide behind religion to make us look better and feel better but in reality we're living a superficial life. Can I tell you, that was a form and fashion of my life for years as a young person. I remember going up to church where the pastor screamed at you. I don't know if anybody else had that experience, but I remember the pastor, he would stick out his bony finger. And I'm not just talking about passion. I'm a passionate guy. But, I mean, he would just scream. And, I mean, every week you just feel beat up. And, and then at the end, they would do this thing called the invitation. And at the invitation, they would play a song over and over again. And the pastor would say, there's just one more person. And so what happened? Everybody in there thought they were the person. And eventually you were just like, hey, can we end and go to lunch? I'm just going to go forward to end this thing. And so everybody go forward and, and make right, some kind of decision. And, and yet the decision never left there, right? It was just a, a religious duty. And so then we would leave and live the way we want. In fact, I remember in the church I grew up in, I didn't know this at the time, but um, some of the, the, the men that I respected the most, some of them were having some really distorted relationships and affairs and, and uh, abuse that was happening. And we see religion manipulate it. In fact, I remember going to Bible college two weeks in. Uh, one of my professors preached a sermon in the chapel, and the sermon was all about authenticity with Christ. And I remember going to my dorm room as a brand-new college student and kind of getting on my face before God. I remember God not speaking in an audible voice, but certainly speaking in the still small voice in my soul. And he said, Dave, are you in or are you out? Are you going to play a game? Are you going to wear a mask? Are you going to live a superficial life? Or are you going to live a supernatural life that I have for you? Are you going to live a life of faith, trusting in the goodness that I have to, to use you for my kingdom and glory? And it was there I got on my face and said, God, I'm done with the mask. I'm done faking. I'm done hiding. I took the mask off and started living my life in the way that I believe God wanted me to. See, here's what I've learned about masks. And we all have them. We all have places we're trying to hide. 
there's a mask for every occasion. No matter what season you're in, there's a mask waiting for you. There's some place or something that, that it's going to call you to hide. It, we all have it. There's a, there's a mask for every occasion. You know the other, th- other thing I know? Is we don't know each other's mask. Like, like, you don't know the places where I could easily hide and I could live superficial and I can't look at you and say, well, I think they're superficial because I don't see your heart, right? And, and so when we talk about mask and superficiality, we don't know each other in this room. Only God sometimes even knows the masks that we run to. As we journey through the Bible, you find over and over again that the Bible comes face to face with this idea of living superficiality. It challenges this idea and calls us to not live in inauthenticity, but to live an authentic life, a life built on supernatural that comes from God himself, from the Holy Spirit living in us through his word, accomplishing his purpose. You know, I don't think there's any irony that the very first message, the very first sermon that Jesus preaches, his inaugural message, his inaugural address, the very first sermon he preaches actually runs face to face against superficiality. It is a call to authenticity. In fact, as we look at this message, this is a a kind of a hard-hitting, in-your-face, shocking, and at times disturbing message, this thing we call the Sermon on the Mount. And I believe it's meant to be that way. What Jesus is doing is he he is giving a wake-up call for authentic living. He is giving a wake-up call to be real. He is challenging our spiritual shallowness. We're going to spend the next few weeks walking through this message this one of five messages that Jesus preached according to Matthew probably many more that we have recorded and this one the first one is eye-opening and my prayer for us us across all campuses is that we would through this time of journeying through these two chapters find a season of renewal as we seek to discover what does it look like to really live like we belong in the kingdom of God What does kingdom living look like? What does supernatural kingdom living look like? What form and fashion does it take? Now, before we dive in here to Matthew chapter 5, and this section is called the Sermon on the Mount because Jesus is is preaching it while on a mount, uh, a little background about this. Matthew is writing from a very interesting perspective. Every every gospel writer kind of has a theme as to why they're writing. For Matthew, he is writing as a Jew to the Jews. In fact, if you were to summarize Matthew's gospel message, you could summarize it in three words. It would be Jesus is king. What what Matthew is writing is to remind or to call to action the Jews to see that Jesus is indeed the king, that he is indeed the Messiah. He is the one worthy of worship, honor, and glory. And so Matthew is writing from that perspective to say Jesus is indeed the king. He's worthy to be followed. Now this message that we are going to look at over the next few weeks is Sermon on the Mount. There There are many different perspectives that we can see from this. There are people that believe different things about this. There are some people, they, they will view these two chapters, Matthew 5 through 7, and they would see it as a description of a future kingdom. Not anything today, but something in the future. And so some would say, this is what the kingdom will look like in the future. This is the way we will act. This is the way we will live. There are others that would call this uh, kind of a convicting two chapters that is meant to give us the high legal demands of the law and then cause us to feel inadequate. 
And then we have to look to the cross to find life. And so it's meant to convict us, so we look to the cross and then find salvation. And so we look at this, this message, and there's some eye-opening statements. Like, for example, Jesus is going to say, you've heard in the law, it says, you shall not murder. I say to you, if you hate your brother in your heart, you've committed murder. That's a pretty strong statement. And so some would say Jesus is trying to raise the legal demand in order for us to see that we need him. Others would look at this and see it from a social justice perspective or a social ethic perspective. And so they would look at this and say, this is the way we ought to treat people, how we ought to love people, how we ought to live as good people in the world. The view that we're going to look at and the view that we're going to take is a view that I call the correct view. That was a joke. That was meant to be a joke. No one got it. Meant to be a little funny. Here's what I think is happening as we read this. The biggest questions that the Jewish people were asking was when is the king coming and what will the kingdom look like? Those are the two questions. I mean, for hundreds of years, centuries, all the way back to Genesis, God promised this one who would come. And throughout the Old Testament, we see the promise, the teasing out of that truth. And so, in Matthew, we find that he's going to prove Jesus is king. And the biggest question is, who is the king and what is the kingdom going to look like? And so there's been this period of silence John the Baptist shows up on the scene, and Jesus appears, but he doesn't appear as a king. He appears as a baby in a manger. He appears in the most humblest of ways, and so it doesn't seem to be the way the description looked in the Old Testament. It doesn't seem to match, and so they began to question, but Jesus was doing some amazing things. In fact, in chapter 4, if you read just before chapter 5, it says that entire cities were following Jesus. He was healing. He was doing miraculous works. But if you also read chapter 4, you find the message of the kingdom. Very different than what they expected. In fact, in, in Matthew 4, 17, he calls out, repent for the kingdom of heaven is near. In, in Matthew 4, 23, he was preaching the good news of the kingdom of repentance. We, we find this idea not of a kingdom physically, but a kingdom invisibly. It wasn't what they expected. See, they expected the king to show up and overthrow the world and then reign there. Jesus didn't do that. Jesus showed up and did what was different. Here's why. Why did why does God do it this way? Why didn't Jesus just show up and go, kingdom here, it's over? Here's why. Because God understood that what held us back from being a part of the physical kingdom wasn't a physical problem. What holds us back from the physical kingdom is not a physical problem, it's an invisible spiritual problem, isn't it? What do I mean? What is it that holds us back from the kingdom of God? It's it's the inward struggle that we all have with sin. Sin hinders us from the physical kingdom. Secondly, what hinders us from the physical kingdom is death. Not just physical death, but spiritual death. The fact that we can't enter a kingdom because we're not alive. We're not alive spiritually. And so what does God do? God, knowing this, comes to create an invisible, an invisible kingdom that will begin to build the physical kingdom. God, in his great wisdom, comes and ushers in the the spiritual kingdom, so that you and I can be a part of the physical kingdom. That, isn't that amazing? That God gives an invitation for us to be a part of his kingdom, but he's going to change us from the inside out. That's why he went to a cross. That's why he walked out of a grave. That's why he ascended to heaven. And now he's waiting for the physical kingdom so that you and I can have an opportunity to come into the spiritual kingdom that will eventually be true and real and physical. And that's the image. That's the message. So we have the promise of a physical kingdom in the meantime, we have a visible, real king, Jesus, who is reigning spiritually in our lives. The problem is, and this is where the struggle lies, is we're waiting. 
And I don't know about you, but waiting is not easy, is it? So if you're a Christian, we're waiting for the kingdom yet to come visible while we live in the spiritual kingdom today because Christ reigns in our hearts. But we're in this waiting game. This, uh, the scholars call it here and not yet. It is now but not yet. It is here now in us, but not yet fully realized as a kingdom. And that waiting is a petri dish for superficiality. Let me repeat that. Waiting can be a petri dish where inauthenticity grows. Uh, here's an example. I, I've been walking through test after test and having blood work every few days. And um, I remember a few weeks back as I was, began this journey with this blood clot of a blood clot in my mesenteric region. When I was walking through this, it was really interesting. There were a few days where my doctor said, Dave, we have some scans and things we want to do, but you're going to have to do a soft kind of liquid diet. I don't know about you, but I don't look anything like a liquid diet guy. <laughs> I'm a meat and potatoes guy. I'm a, I'm a bigger the steak, the better the meal guy. And they were like, well, David, you got you to just eat jello and broth. And I was like, can man live on this alone? <laughs> now, the first day was fine, right? Jello was good. It was good. Second day, third day. Eventually, Everything in me didn't want to wait. Dreams of Big Macs were in my head. <laughs> Red Robin onion rings. I love those things. Guacamole. Right. I started dreaming about all this food and thinking, man, I'm just gonna, I'm just gonna drive by McDonald's and never tell my wife, who is like another doctor in my house taking care of me. Right? And this is what happens. And, and by the way, that silly little moment is true in our lives, isn't it? When we wait. We don't like it. And so when we talk about Christ and the kingdom, we're, we've been waiting all of our lives, right? They, we've been waiting for 2,000 years. He, is he ever going to come back? Is he ever going to set up his, his physical kingdom? And so what happens? All of a sudden it becomes a, a place of growth so that we all put masks on. We all run to something to hide behind because we don't yet fully believe that that kingdom is going to come. And so I believe waiting can be a petri dish for superficiality. So what is Jesus going to do? Jesus is going to give us the outworking of the invasion of God's kingdom into our lives. He is going to show us kingdom realities demonstrated in kingdom living. And what he's going to do, he's going to shock us. He's going to shock us and he's going to really assault the status quo. He's going to pierce the veil of superficial religion and our shallow pursuits. And he's going to show us what really kingdom living today is looks like. Take a look with me. Matthew chapter 5. We're going to begin in verse 1. It says, seeing the crowds, he went up the mountain. This is where we get the Sermon on the Mount. He's on a mountain. And when he sat down, his disciples came to him. And he opened his mouth and he taught them, saying, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. You are the salt of the earth. But if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. 
You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Notice Jesus begins this message with this call to happiness, blessedness. In fact, if you've ever been around the Christian world, no, you, you know this, this section, it's called the Beatitudes. And the reason it's called the Beatitudes is because of the Latin word beatudo. And it has this idea of being happy, being blessed. But the word here in the Greek is actually used throughout the, the uh, New Testament. It's used 50 times in the New Testament, 30 times in the Gospels, 13 times in Matthew. And right here in this section, it's used nine different times. The word here is the word makarios. Karyos, and it literally means to be blessed or to be happy. But what this really means is not just blessed and happy. It actually has the idea of being a privileged recipient of something. Now, I use a little bit of my own definition here. We are a privileged recipient of a divine favor. Here in this text, it is what God is giving to us that we are recipients of. So we are a privileged recipient of what God is giving. Now, why do we say it that way? Because happiness doesn't come unless it's received. Right, you, you wake up this morning and you, you can wake up and you could probably say it, but it's not true. Right, you can wake up and say, I'm going to be happy today. And then someone says something to you. What happens? See, happiness is based upon what is received. It's true, isn't it? It's based upon what we receive. And so happiness as a, an emotion is based upon something we get, something we receive. And so, so the idea of happiness is there's something that's going to make me happy. For some of you teachers out there, snow makes you happy. I mean, man, isn't it good you had that week off from snow? And, and, and for you, you're like, I love winter. And there's other of us are just like, son, will you please come out? There's other parents that are like, it's time for my kids to go back to school. There's some, man, sports seasons come, and there's happiness that, that enjoys, right? Golf season's almost here, spring, and some that makes us happy. Others, it's like, you know, I love the seasons. The others love flowers and crafts and Others love, right? We all have different things that make us happy. So here's the image. As we read this, he's describing what it looks like to live a blessed, happy life as kingdom people. But notice what it says. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are the meek. Blessed are those who are merciful, who are pure in heart. Let's just pause here for a moment. Blessed are those who are persecuted. I read this and I think, how is it in the world is this going to make me happy? How in the world is this a call to a blessed kingdom life? Like, is, is Jesus off his rocker? Has Jesus lost his mind? Is he already thinking about the cross and so he's just saying odd things? This seems absolutely odd and absurd. If I was writing this, if we were writing this from a worldly perspective, wouldn't we say here, blessed are the rich? Blessed are the powerful. Uh, instead of blessed are the meek, we would say blessed are the strong. Instead of saying blessed are the merciful, we would say blessed are those who don't put up with other people's junk. Instead of saying blessed are the peacemakers, we would say blessed are people that win the fight. Anybody married out there? Right? Isn't there something blessed about winning the argument? I mean, there's some satisfaction in that when you just know you won. I mean, that's how I would write this. Not blessed are those who are persecuted. Blessed are those who are accepted by people. So what does Jesus do? Jesus is describing 
what happens in the kingdom is very different than the world. He is, he is giving us a counterculture perspective. In fact, what I would call this is Jesus is changing the price tags. You ever, you ever gone to a store and had that happen? Where you grab an item that the tag says is on sale, and you go up to the cash register and they tell you it's not on sale? And you're like, but the tag says it's on sale. And they're like, no, it's not on sale. I'm sorry, the computer doesn't compute that. Somebody wrongly tagged that. And you ask the question, whatever happened to the customer's always right? You ever have that happen? Jesus here is flipping the tag. He would say, listen, the world would scream power and authority and get your own and go after what you want, win the battles, right? That's what the world would pro project. But Jesus comes and says, no, no, in my kingdom, here is the way it looks to live. Here is what a kingdom living looks like under the authority of the kingdom of God. It is this unique way, living in light of something that we know eventually will be even greater He's describing to us what life looks like, like an engaged person, right? If you're engaged, you don't get engaged to be engaged. You get engaged to be married. For us, we are engaged to the kingdom, and one day this kingdom will be reality. So in the meantime, this is what it looks like to be blessed. This is what it looks like, and that blessing may not just be here. It is certainly going to be in the future where we will see the benefit of this kingdom living. Now, I want to look at this, and I want to go ahead and confess to you as we look at these points. There are kind of eight points that we're going to look at. We could spend a week on each one of them. <laughs> we could stay here for the entire week and not stop and not get through all of them. And so I want to look at them very, very, very uh, high level as we dive into this message. But we're going to see two main things here. First of all, the first thing we see is an attitude toward God. We see attitudes toward God. Here is what kingdom living looks like in the right attitude toward God. Take a look at the first one. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. The first one we see is this idea of being poor in spirit. The idea of being completely dependent. Completely dependent. Poor in spirit has the idea that we are completely dependent upon God. Now in a world that we live in, we have this world that celebrates strength and power and, and kind of get yours. But this beatitude begins, the, the, the message begins with a call to actually empty ourselves. To actually be depleted. To actually be poor, impoverished, lacking. Think about that for a moment. This is countercultural. Jesus is saying that really kingdom living begins with an understanding that I am spiritually depleted. I am spiritually bankrupt. You know why? Because when I am when I when I can't be filled, I can't be filled with God if I'm filled with myself, right? And so what is God doing? God is saying, I gotta be depleted. I gotta, I gotta be emptied in order for authentic spirituality to take over. In fact, I would dare say some of the greatest words in the Christian language is God, I can't. I can't do it. I can't live up. I can't accomplish it. I can't do it. I would dare say those words are amazingly powerful. Why? Because it's the weak, the weary, and the worn out who end up getting blessed because they understand God in a real way. When we are spiritually bankrupt, we are leaving room to only allow God to remain to answer that bankruptcy. And so when we're worn out, when we're weary, when we're weak, what happens? I see God in a beautiful new light. I have nothing to offer. I am spiritually depleted. In my spiritual depletion, in my spiritual bankruptcy, I then hold on to God because he's all of God. Notice the second when he goes, not only blessed are the poor in spirit, he says, blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Now we see this and we think um, this idea of mourning is, is weeping over things that are painful. That's not the word here actually. This word mourn is very uniquely connected to other verses, and every time it shows up, it's actually connected to sin. So I would say it this way. Number two, take sin seriously. What we mourn over 
is an indication of our values. And what we find throughout the scriptures is this strange connection in places like 1 Corinthians 5 and James chapter 4 and 2 Peter chapter 3, this idea of mourning, but not just mourning over what we see, mourning over the sin in our own lives, that we take our own sin seriously. Or let me put it another way, we shun the lighthearted attitude regarding the serious sins of our lives. And we are mourning over the sin that we have. And this is not just regret and remorse, this is, I'm turning from it. I'm sick of it. It, it. it causes me to weep that I would do this. The struggle of sin keeps coming, and I turn from it and I obey God. That's the image here. Repentance, and notice it leads to comfort. In fact, can I tell you something? What I've learned in my life, this is my own spiritual journey, is in the moments where I don't feel comforted, the first place I should look is in my own heart, in my own soul. Is there something sinful that's keeping me to, from enjoying the comfort of God? Is it something that I need to turn from? in order to find the comfort of God. Now, does this mean that God doesn't comfort us in our, our sicknesses and our, and our illnesses? Absolutely not. We know in other places, uh, I look at 2 Corinthians chapter 1, right? It says he, he is, he is a comf- great comforter. He comforts all of our comforts. The image is he is a comforter, but here, it's specifically related to our sin. We see sin for what it is, and we find him to be our comfort. Notice the third one. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Think about that. If you were to describe inheriting the earth, who inherits the earth in our world today? Isn't it the powerful isn't it those who grab power and authority and those who are rich and those who own business, right? When we think about power, we think of it as control, don't we? They inherit the earth. Jesus here says, blessed are the meek. Now, in the first century, meekness was considered weakness. Jesus said, no, 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 meekness is an opportunity for kingdom living. Meekness is this idea. It's not a sign of weakness. It is a deep understanding of a great power that triumphs over everything else. And so I can find myself not, not pretense in the way I view life, but actually now this eradicates pretension because now I know that God is all that is able, that God is able to do what he desires, that he does as he wills. And so I want to, and what meekness means is to submit myself to him. I want to humble myself under his amazing, mighty hand and know that he will do his work in my life. By the way, I love the way John Piper describes this. One of my favorite descriptions. He, he says the meek don't have to strive and claw for their inheritance. No, you you don't need the vain pleasures of one-upmanship or going to get yours because God has already made you an heir of the world. Would Would I feel the need to brag that my house is bigger than your house if I knew that my father owned the city and I was a beneficiary of his will? I love that. Like, would I need to brag or show my strength if I know that my father not only owns the city, he owns the street, he owns the community, he owns the state, he owns the world? Would I need to, would I need, would I need to brag about anything? Do I need to be strong if I know my God is weak and I, as an heir, inherited his strength spiritually in my life? See, it changes everything. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit earth. Notice verse 6, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Number four, right desires. We see a hunger and thirst for righteousness. Here's Jesus using the keenness of our appetites, hungering and thirsting, and saying, in kingdom living, you hunger and thirst after what is right. This means that, and he's driving this point home to kingdom-minded people, is that we don't just do good things once in a while. No, there is a hunger, a passion in us to constantly do what is right, a desire for righteousness. And by the way, notice it says, and they will be filled or satisfied. 
I love this. Don't miss this. I, I think Jesus here is calling it out. You ever feel like you're in a dry place? You ever feel like you're in a desert wondering and you're wondering and no one gets it? It feels like your prayers are just hitting the ceiling and God's not listening. This, this reminds us that in those moments, in those moments as we yearn for righteousness, there will be a time we will be filled. There will be a time we will be satisfied. That what God is doing, he's strengthening our inner man in order to pour in what's coming later. He is strengthening our inner man and waiting and he's going to pour in what we need later so we don't lose heart. God isn't going to abandon us. Why? Because the Holy Spirit lives inside of us and God doesn't abandon himself. God will accomplish his work. Our mind will be satisfied in truth. Our heart will be satisfied with his love. Our will will be satisfied in his authority. We will be satisfied. Now, before we go to the last four, I want you to notice something. Notice the progression of the first four. There's a progression here. Notice the progression. Jesus here, in a message about kingdom living, shares what I would be convinced is the gospel message, right? In order to be a part of this kingdom, where does it start? It starts with me confessing, God, I can't do this. God, I am spiritually bankrupt. I've got nothing to offer. I am poor in spirit. And the reason I'm poor in spirit, God, is because I have this sin in the way. This sin that continues to trip me up. And so what happens, I begin to mourn over my sin. I feel, feel overwhelmed by it. It's not just regret. It's not just remorse. It's I want to get away from it. I want to repent, turn from it. That then leads to meekness where I say, God, I'm going to humble myself. I'm going to humble myself and I'm going to respond to you uh, in submission. I need you. And now I'm responding in submission by faith. Then what happens? What happens is God then puts in our souls a hunger, not our appetite, but his appetite, a hunger and thirst for righteousness. Notice the progression. This is powerful. It starts by being depleted. It then ends with God saying, and you're going to be satisfied. I'm empty, but now I'm satisfied by what you give me. This is the progression of these first four. My attitude toward God all of a sudden changes because I know he's given me exactly what I need to be satisfied in him. What seemed impossible now is expressed and longing inside of me. But it doesn't stop there. Not only is it an attitude toward God, but this attitude towards God in the kingdom living now lives itself out in actions toward others. That's the second observation is actions toward others. Notice what he says in verse 7. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. All of a sudden, now it goes outward. It goes from in to out. Blessed are the merciful. Mercy. Show mercy. Number five, show mercy. We are people who are merciful. Mercy was a central part of Jesus' message. It it was the idea that, that we've been shown mercy, and so the natural response is we then show mercy to other people. By the way, this word mercy literally means a heart of pity. It's the idea that I'm willing and ready to forgive anyone who has wronged me, and then in response, I'm also willing to help those in need. There's this idea of mercy. I see people in a different light. And notice what he says next here. He says in verse eight, blessed are the poor in spirit, for they shall see God. Number six, integrity. We live with integrity. Kingdom people live with integrity. We are pure in heart. Purity in heart is an internal integrity that manifests itself in our behavior. You want to know whether you're integritous or not? The question you can ask is, can I be trusted? The number one question of integrity is, can I be trusted? Do, do my, does my spouse trust me? Do my kids trust me? Do my coworkers trust me? Do my boss, does my boss trust me? That's the image, right? Is can I truly be trusted? That's integrity. Or as I like to remind my boys, I always... Uh, say this at, at certain times, this reminder that make sure what you're doing today is what you can live with tomorrow. 
That's integrity. Make sure that what I'm doing today is something I can live with tomorrow. You want to know whether you're being integrity-filled or not? What are you doing today that will have effect on you tomorrow? That's the question we should all ask. It's a question of integrity. Notice he says, pure in heart, for they shall see God. By the way, this is true in the scriptures. We find this idea of those with a humble, pure heart, a contrite heart, God will not deny. This picture of seeing God. Number seven, notice it. Blessed are the peacemakers, they shall be called sons of God. We are pursuers of peace. We are peacemakers. We look at the world and say, how can I make peace? How can I build bridges to people? How can I not live in animosity, but how can I live in reconciliation? How can I bring harmony to relationships? See, it's not staying in a grudge. It's releasing myself of the grudge and saying, now I'm looking to make peace at all costs. Why? Because God has made peace with me. He's made a bridge to me so that now I can be a bridge to others that God has put in my way. And then lastly, notice, number eight, we endure ridicule. Ridicule. We are persecuted for Christ's sake, for righteousness' sake. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you. These are, by the way, one, and utter all kind of evils against you falsely on my account. We endure persecution. Now, I want to stop here for a moment. If I read this correctly, I would think in my mind, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute, Jesus. So if I am merciful, if I am pure in heart, if I pursue after righteousness, if I'm meek in my attitude, why wouldn't everybody just like me? Right, and think about it. I'm merciful, I'm a peacemaker. I have, I have purity in my heart. Of course, everybody's just gonna accept me, right? Jesus actually says the opposite. And here's why. When people live a righteous life, it makes unrighteous people uncomfortable. When we live in righteousness, it actually runs against the grain of the world that we live in. And it causes a bit of discomfort, causes a bit of pushback. It can cause even a bit of resistance, contempt. Jesus here says, you know, as a kingdom person, we're not called to be popular or adored or even admired. No, in fact, Jesus tells his disciples later on in the Gospel of John, John 15, 18, it says, if the world hates you, know that it's hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own, but because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Notice the two reasons why the world hates us. The world hates us because we're not of the world, and the world hates us because we belong to Jesus. Now, for centuries here in our country, we have had a Christian culture. And so this wasn't a reality. But can I tell you, don't miss this, I, I believe the tide is changing. The tide is changing where Christianity is now going to be looked at as an outcast idea. As an outcast ideology. It's happening right before our eyes. You just, just turn on any news channel. You see it. It's this idea of, of resisting and seeing Christianity in contempt. It's happening right before our eyes. And what happens is, as a result, now we're not facing persecution like a lot of the world, but we can start to feel the pressure of our, our kingdom. Feel the pressure of the kingdom that's not of this world. And can I tell you, if there's ever a moment in history more important than any others, it's right now that you and I as Christians don't live kingdom living in limbo. What do I mean? Not to have both of my feet in both worlds. If there's any time to commit myself to Christ and say, Christ, I belong to another kingdom, and so I need to reflect you, today is the day to do that. As the world becomes more resistant to Christianity, we become more important to the cause of the kingdom for Christ. It's happening right before us. It's a call. It's a kingdom call. By the way, Jesus was preparing the way for that and when he spoke these words. Now, 
There are two outpourings of this truth. I want to show you before we end these outpourings. If we live this kingdom way, if we live with this kingdom attitude and these kingdom actions, these two things are true in our lives spiritually. I want to show them to you. Notice verse 12. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. First of all, we find that living this way is an occasion for joy. An occasion for joy. You might say, wait a minute, wait a minute. Persecution is an occasion for joy? That's what he says. Rejoice. Be glad. In fact, I want to show you this. If you've been napping this entire time, I want to show you one thing. Would you just, I mean, no, I'm serious. I'm serious. Just, if there's anything you get out of this, I want to show you this because this is powerful. This, this changes the way we view this. I want you to go back to verse 3 for a moment. Th- this phrase, rejoice and be glad, actually relates to all of these Beatitudes. Notice verse 3. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God. Notice the word is. Is is in the present tense. Now I know some of you are like, Dave, I did not come here to get an English lesson. But is is the is it present. It's present tense, meaning it's now. For theirs is the kingdom. We live this way, the kingdom is yours now. Now notice verse 12. Sorry, verse 11. Actually, go back to verse 10, which is kind of the end cap of the Beatitudes. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Now go back and read every other one. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be. Notice it's future. Comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Future. For they shall be satisfied. They shall receive. Notice the rest of them are future. You may not in this world right now be comforted in the way that you think. Right now, you may not be satisfied in the way that you think. Here's the point. As we live these kingdom realities, we can rejoice because there's assurance in the future of a guarantee these future promises will take place. So here's what he's doing. He's saying in the present assurances of the kingdom, you have a future promises of these things actually satisfying you. Or let me make this a simple statement. I tell my boys this all the time as I implore them to live for Jesus. I say to them, guys, I promise you, I promise you, if you live your life for Christ today, it will be worth it tomorrow. I promise you that one day when we die or we enter the kingdom, this life for Christ in his kingdom will be worth it all when we stand before our king. It'll be worth it all. So rejoice. Rejoice because we know the end of the story. Rejoice because we know where this leads. We know what the kingdom will be like. And so we can rejoice. And then secondly, not only is it an occasion for joy, it's, a, it's an opportunity for witness. It is an opportunity to witness. Take a look at verse 13 and 14. You are the salt of the earth, but if the salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? Verse 14, you are the light of the world. A city set on the hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but they put it on a stand so all may see. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works. He uses two analogies here. First of all, he says we are the salt of the earth. By the way, notice he doesn't say we become salt. It says we are salt. Salt. Now, when we think of salt, we think of salt like Morton's salt, and we put it on, right, iodized salt or whatever. Um, in their day, salt was a way you got paid. Salt was a major export and import. Salt was, was used for a lot of things. It was used to preserve. It, it was used to fertilize. It was used to purify. It, it was used to get rid of corrosion. It was used to create thirst in animals. It, it was used to melt 
things. Right, Ohio? <laughs> Melt snow. It was used to heal. You would put it on scabs and wounds to heal you. He, salt had a major influence, so people were paid by salt. By the way, you ever heard the description? That man's not worth his weight in salt? Ever heard that? That came from the first century. He's not worthy of the salt. What is it? The way they, they were paid. They were paid by salt. So Jesus says, we are the salt of the earth. We are the ones that preserve God's kingdom. We are the ones that, that create thirst for God's kingdom. And we're, the, we're the ones that purify and show the purity against the corrosion of the world. We are the ones that, that melt away the sin of the, of the culture and show a different way. We are the ones that bring healing to our culture. See, Jesus is using an absurd illustration to say, listen, if salt loses its saltiness, what happens? It's not salt anymore. If we as kingdom people don't live as kingdom people, what happens? Well, no one then knows the kingdom. And by the way, interesting thing about salt, this is a little side note. You don't go to a restaurant and order a steak. Of course, that steak is going to be salted with some form or fashion as they cook it. When you walk out of a restaurant that's been really good and it's been salted well, you don't walk out and go, wow, and that salt was good. <laughs> Man, they use Morton premium salt. Morton salt is like... You don't walk out, do you? You walk out and say, man, that steak was good. That chicken was good. That salad, do you put salt on salad? I don't know, but um, sure, might as well. Right, you walk out, and, and you don't talk about the salt. You talk about what the salt was connected to, right? That's the image here. We are the salt of the earth, and in the end, we don't get any glory. What happens? We're just preserving what is God's. We are demonstrating the kingdom that belongs to God, and so people, as they see our life, see the greater kingdom. Notice the second one. You're the salt of the earth. You are the light of the world. Now get this. Notice he doesn't say curse the darkness. Can I be honest? I think we're in a, a Christian culture today in our Christianity where we're spending way too much time, things like social media, cursing the darkness. And my question I always ask is, why are we expecting unbelieving people to act believing? Why are we expecting corrupt people to act like they get why the world exists the, the way it does? Why are we expecting anybody to get the answers right? I would expect the opposite. They're never going to get it right without being able to see. And they can't see because they're in a pitch dark room of darkness of corruption and sin. And so what is our job? Our job isn't to curse the darkness. Our job is to be the light of the world. Our job is to show up and live differently, to live with these kingdom principles. And all of a sudden what happens, these kingdom realities demonstrated in kingdom living now becomes a form that people say, man, I, I, they've got something that I want. They've got something that this world doesn't offer. They're joy-filled and they bright and shine as light for God. As, as we end, I, I was reading this, and I was thinking about a story, uh, one of the formidable stories of my life was back in 2003, I had the privilege of going to Papua New Guinea, the jungles of Papua New Guinea. While I was there, I was visiting some missionary friends, and um, they're in the middle, they were in the middle of nowhere. It was called the Haywood Tribe. It's a National Geographic. Have you ever seen National Geographic? It is exactly like that. These people wore leaves, and I mean, they didn't have really any clothing, and, and they didn't even know who Jesus was. They didn't even know their own language. They only knew to speak it. They couldn't write it. And so these missionaries were beginning to train them as to how they could know their own language, write their own language, so that they could translate the Bible into their language. And so we got there to visit and encourage these missionaries. And they were telling us a story about when they first got there, they were building their house. Now, this house was a humble house, but one of the things they brought with them was a generator, so that at certain times they could have electricity. Right, and we we're accustomed to electricity, and so they brought a generator. And they told the story about when they pulled out their first lamp. They had a lamp that kind of hung over top of the table, 
And they talked about when the tribespeople came into their house and saw this light, they showed how the light lit up. So they turn on the generator and they lit up the electricity and the light bulb goes, and they were blown away. They said all the tribespeople, they made a line to come into the house to see a light bulb. They'd never seen it before. So one of the tribespeople, one of the main chiefs, asked for a light bulb. And so the missionaries were like, yeah, of course, we'll give you a light bulb. So they gave him a light bulb as a gift. Uh, a, a few days later, they were journeying around the village, and they came to the chief's hut. And in the chief's hut, made out of mud and sticks and thatches, and they made this hut. They walk into the hut, being invited, and hanging in the middle of the hut is a light bulb. But it's being hung by a string. And this chief said, we're waiting for the light bulb to come on. We're waiting for it to illuminate. And it gave an opportunity for the missionaries to describe that this light bulb doesn't work without being connected to the electricity that causes the light to come on. And they were blown away and amazed by that. Can I tell you this morning, when we find our life in Christ, all of a sudden we live differently. We live differently. We look differently. Life in Christ begins to, to connect to our lives so that now we shine. We, we don't look like the darkness. We shine as lights. We become salt. Salt that preserves. Salt that purifies. Salt that creates thirst. Salt that heals. Salt that, that stirs the thirst in others. So they want what we have, that they may see our good works and glorify the Father's heaven. We are the light of the world. We are the salt of the earth. Would you stand with me as we pray? Maybe you're here this morning and you don't know Christ, you know about him, but you don't know him. He came and died for you. He, he made an invitation to the kingdom, a kingdom that will last forever, a kingdom that will, will remain, a kingdom that will never end. This world's kingdom, it will end. It will pass away. But his kingdom will remain. And maybe this morning something pricked your heart and you want to take a step, a step of faith to say, God, I, I want to know you that you would confess your poor in spirit so that he may fill you. And yours can be the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven. We have some people at Next Steps ready to talk with you. As, to the right as you leave, they're ready to pray with you. Maybe you're here this morning, you know Christ, but you're wearing a mask. You're hiding behind some superficiality, and today is a day you can take the mask off and say, God, I want to be authentic. I want to be authentic. I want to shine for you. I don't want to hide behind insecurity and I don't want to hide behind my abilities. I don't want to hide behind my, even my own religion. God, I want, to, I want to be authentic so that when people see me, it doesn't mean I'm perfect, it means but I'm pursuing you. And the word says, blessed are you. Blessed are you if you live that way. Happy are you. There's freedom in that. God, we want to thank you for your word. God, I need this reminder. Help us to be kingdom people. Kingdom people overwhelmed by a kingdom not of this world, a kingdom that you bought for us at the cross, a kingdom that you, you proved for us at the resurrection, a kingdom that, that you demonstrated to us in your ascension, a kingdom that promises to come again where you will set up a physical kingdom. It will be real. It will be realized. You will reign as king forever. But God, in the meantime, in the now but not yet, I pray that we would live as kingdom people reflecting you, the salt of the earth, the light of the world. Offer your glory, Jesus. We thank you and pray. Amen. Amen. Thanks for being here this morning. Love you guys. God bless you. May we go live as kingdom people for his glory.